You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. Let's turn to Matthew 18 because I believe that God's going to be doing a work in us uh, this morning as we gather together. Open up to Matthew 18. We're hearing from God's word. Uh, Every time we gather together, we want to hear the teachings of Jesus. We want to hear what God has spoken through his word. Why would you ever want to just listen to some schmuck on a stage tell you what to think about everything? Hey, let me give you my commentary on the world. Whatever. Like, we're here to hear from Jesus, to hear from God, to hear from the scriptures. The fact that anyone tolerates anything less than that. I have no idea what's driving them. Jesus is our Lord. He's got the truth. He's filled with the Spirit. These words are Spirit and they're life. Can I get an amen? Amen. So that's why we're in Matthew 18. We don't want to be anywhere else. We're going to start reading in verse 15. For context, Jesus has just talked about the little ones, the lowly, the humble. And he said, look, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, there's going to be a severe punishment in store for those individuals. That's how valuable the, the humble, the lowly, the little ones are in God's eyes. And he says, they're so valuable, I go over, you know, land and sea to find them, to bring them back to be reconciled to me. And you know, in some of the most severe warnings in that passage related to the little ones, uh, Jesus says to each of us, he says, hey, do some self-examination. Look at your own life. If there's anything in your own life that'll cause you to stumble, trip you up, from the path of God or cause someone else to be tripped up, then you got to get rid of that. You got to get rid of that. You got to take that out of your life. We got to make sure that we're not a stumbling block and that we're not falling over stumbling blocks that take us away from what God desires. And Jesus is going to reference two very clear stumbling blocks in the community of faith. For one, there's the offense, there's, there's the faults, there's the sins of others done against us and their unwillingness to reconcile with us in those. And there's also the unforgiveness, the gracelessness that can happen in Christian community that also becomes a stumbling block. So both those things are going to be spoken to in Matthew chapter 18 as we continue. And there's going to be a message both for the offender and the offended in the relational conflicts that we'll see in church community. So just take a moment and think for a second, do a gut check. Always, this sort of message likens itself that direction. Think Are you the offender in a relational conflict that you have right now, either with family, somebody in the church, somebody beyond the church? Are you the offended party? Are you somebody who has an outstanding, you know, debt, you know, that someone else has to pay to you? Someone's messed with you. Someone's hurt you. Think about those individuals and keep them in mind as we're moving through the scripture, because it's not just for us to study it and think about the principles, it's for us to apply them as we consider what Jesus says. Let's read together. Verse 15 in Matthew chapter 18. The verses will also be on the screen. Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, 
There am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As it began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. As I said at the outset, there's a message both for offender and the offended in the passage I just read. Jesus in his first teaching for the offended says, if your brother or sister sins against you, and we might as well take that as when your brother or sister sins against you. I mean, come on, right? I've heard from a lot of people in church community, I cannot believe this person is a Christian and they're a part of a church and they're acting this way and they've treated me this way. I just don't believe it. Believe it. Believe it, all right? I've been around long enough to know that kind of stuff happens, all right? There is going to be times where you are hurt. There are going to be times when your toes are stepped on. If you don't want any of that sort of experience, then go live alone. And you will get on your own nerves. You will bother yourself, I guarantee you. All right, because this is just part of what it means to be community. This is what it means to be the family of God. When we extend ourselves in love to another... That opens us up to be more vulnerable to hurts, and we will get hurt. Accept it and embrace it as the way of Christ. So when your brother or sister, in Jesus' words, if your brother or sister sins against you, he says, go and speak to that individual. Point out their fault. Now, for so, so many people, we're already stuck here. We haven't even gotten into all the other... This is verse 15. This is the first verse. We're going to spend a little second on this because... So many people will say, I can't do what Jesus is saying because I'm, I'm not a confrontational person. You know, a lot of people will say that. I'm not a confrontational person. And, and you know, my first thought is, well, where does all that anger go? You know, I, I, there are some things you get slighted and then it just kind of rolls off your back. Other things, you know, you're hurt and it festers. Where does that go? You know, I think of it like static electricity. You guys remember being a kid at the playground and you go down the slides and get shocked like 10 times while you're going down the slide and then you're like, you know, electrified and the next thing you touch, you know, your parents, you, ah, you know. I feel it's great being a kid at the playground. 
But I just feel like there's so many people, they have that charge, right? And you interact with them, and in the slightest interaction, you just get zapped, right? And you're going, what's going on with that person? Well, they have no way to release that charge in their life. I mean, for you, if you don't go and confront the person who's hurt you, how do you release that charge? People who say, I'm not a confrontational person, I just take that to mean, well, okay, you bury your pains, you know, (laughs) and and you retreat, you know, you run away, or you bury it until you explode, or, or you leak it a little bit everywhere you go to basically everyone you know. So we've got we to gotta do what Jesus says here, but we don't have to think of it in those stark terms. A lot of times we use the word confrontation, but it's not like you're going to this person with this axe to grind, you know, you're going to tell them what's up with them. Now let's just call what Jesus says here communication. And let's agree to do that. Let's agree to be a, a group of people who are going to embrace healthy communication. Someone harms you. Someone does something that's a sin. You go to that person. It's healthy communication. And if they're humble and a person of healthy communication, they will listen to you. And then you will have won. I mean, that's it. Jesus says, look, they just need to listen to you. They don't even need to just jump to your side of the equation and immediately agree with everything you said. It's about inclining one to another. You're going to go to that person. They're going to listen and receive what you have to say. And then you, you've won. There's going to be reconciliation in that relationship. Now, what if that doesn't happen? What if uh, you can't figure it out? The conflict remains. Well, Jesus says, I want you to bring in somebody else. Let's have more ears, another voice in this conflict for both the sake of the offender as well as the offended. Think about Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right. So the first person coming out of the gate, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone would do that to you. That is so horrible. But then, after some cross-examination, it seems like the story's changed. Someone else comes forward and goes, I don't think... It's, it's exactly the way that you said it at first. I mean, it, it's sort of like you're the offended party and you're going in to like judge Judy thinking you're going to get a ruling in your favor. But instead, right, you get embarrassed on live TV and you got that awkward hallway interview at the end. Like that happens sometimes when you bring in the mediator, when you bring in that third party. That's, that's a safety check on everybody in this situation. But let's assume that they're actually bringing in wise counsel. And the conflict still remains. Jesus says, we'll bring it before the church. Now, I don't believe, and though it's kind of open for interpretation, I don't believe this is the justification to sort of do like a public tar and feathering of someone in front of thousands. You know, you know let's, let's do a public shaming of this individual in front of everyone we possibly can. I think Jesus is suggesting you ought to go before the representatives of that church community. You ought to go before the governing body and plead your case, and see what results. Now, if that final step doesn't work, Jesus says, you've got to just distance yourself from this individual. You've got to excommunicate him, kick him out. That sounds really harsh on the service, right? That doesn't sound like being the church of Jesus. But realize, this person has essentially already decided that they are not willing to do the work to be one. And we're simply enacting in practice what they've already accepted spiritually. Jesus says, dismiss that from your community, and I will stand with that decision. That's what he says in verses 18 to 20. Now, those are some interesting verses. When we read them, you're probably like, where did this come from? This whole thing about verse 18, binding and loosing. 
These aren't words that we use a lot. Maybe you've heard in a prayer time, someone praying, uh, you know, I bind Satan. You know, this isn't referring to binding any evil spiritual forces. Uh, it, Jesus is simply saying, look, whatever decision that you make, whether you need to hold this person accountable or you're extending grace, whether they're restored to the community or they're kicked out, you're binding or you're loosing, you're prohibiting or you're permitting. When you make that decision, I'm going to stand with you in that decision. It's going to be ratified in heaven. And it doesn't take that many of you to ratify that sort of decision. That's what he goes on to say in verse 19. He goes, look, if as few of you as two or three agrees on this sort of stuff, I'm standing with you. And a lot of this would, you know, sort of answer, I think, the critique that they might face in the ancient church, where you've got congregations of 10, 20, 30 people. Someone's the offender, and they get kicked out of the church. They go to the leadership body and say, well, what authority do you have to kick me out? It's just the two of you. It's just the three of you. And they're like, well, actually, uh, Jesus's, Jesus's authority. But I think those statements are also a check on church leadership. Because they should be making these decisions regarding church discipline with this weight upon their shoulders that when they decide things, Jesus' very presence is there with them in the midst of those decisions. Now, these are great principles from Matthew chapter 18. I want to just say real quick, uh, you know, it's not worth our time if we're just going to go through the motions when Jesus gives us something this specific to do. Like, like when we're talking about this, Jesus means for us to apply it. It's like, this is actually your game plan. And it's only worthwhile if we give ourselves to it, right, along the way. They're great principles. But what bearing do these principles have on the modern church, modern church discipline? Because I think in the ancient world, they had a much easier way of applying all this. You know, if you kicked somebody out of fellowship in the ancient church, they didn't have anywhere else to go. You kick them out of the fellowship, it's like, all right, I'm out. If that happens today, if somebody finds out, oh, I'm the offender in this situation, I've got these relational issues and conflicts, and oh boy, you know, I've got issues and I'm excommunicated, ho, 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 I'll drive a quarter of a mile down the street, and the little pope of blank church of Huntington Beach is going to be there to receive me with open arms. I'll start over again, right? And plenty of people do. Many people do take that course of action. They sidestep their responsibility and they release and act like it doesn't even exist, all those relational issues that they left behind. You know, anybody can do that. They can pack up their little suitcase of all their hurts and their wounds and go on the tour of churches of Orange County and act like nothing ever happened. But it did happen. And Jesus says, wherever you go, you should know that's still binding that's still binding what you've left behind in heaven. On the flip side, I think there's a check on abuse of authority in the church. I mean, there's a lot of misuses of church authority today. And, and, and people would say, well, Jesus stands with our decision. I, I, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of pastors and leaders who have used this as the basis to commit spiritual abuse against people. Is God standing with all those abuses? Everything that's been done in his name? You know, I'm thinking, what if every leader of a church, what if every pastor, what if every group of elders, when they got together, they said to themselves, you know, what if Jesus were here in this meeting? 
You know, how would that change things? Not even just like, what would Jesus say or what would Jesus do? But what if Jesus were just here to see what's taking place in this meeting? How much do you think would change? How much do you think would change in the writing up of budgets? How much do you think would change in the vision casting meeting? How many things do you think would change in that church discipline meeting that's so tense? If they were just to say, what if Jesus was here to see it? And I got one better for you. Drop the what if. Because Jesus is there. And he sees it all. He's either there standing in solidarity with the leaders and the decisions they're making or standing against those same decisions. He's there. He sees everything that happens under the sun. So the onus is on leaders to take a posture of humility to make sure that every decision that they make, especially in these tense conversations, is in fact in line with the will of Jesus. And it's for all of us to take a posture of humility when we find out that we are the offending party and that someone has a fault against us. You know, our ability to fulfill our mission, our gospel-hearted vision as a church community is contingent upon our fidelity, our faithfulness to what is spoken of here by Jesus. To the degree that we remain graceless, to the degree that we don't have healthy communication, to the degree that we have church abuse and leadership, that's the degree to which we will fail. Every community that isn't built upon Jesus, his principles, his direction, his presence, that's graceless, that doesn't have healthy communication, that has abuses of church leadership, it'll fail. It will end. Now, all this talk about church discipline and communication over faults and authority to hold people accountable and excommunicate, it can make this feel very tedious. And it can make this whole conversation feel very combative and exclusionary. But that is not the overriding heart of this passage. That is not the driving force behind this passage, is that feeling of uh, combativeness or exclusivity. Because the church at its core is the most inclusive community in all of history. And I say that without the last 10 years of like politics around the word inclusive. Okay, can we just put that out of mind? I know that's a loaded word, charge. A lot of emotions get brought up in some folks just using that word. Let's use the word before the last 10 years existed. Okay, the church is the most inclusive community the world has ever seen. I mean, there are people from rival nations that are sworn enemies of each other in culture and religion that are all being brought together in the gospel under the banner of Jesus. It was across socioeconomic classes from slaves to rulers. They were becoming brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. Beyond gender, men and women together, one. You know, beyond the moral and the immoral, those who thought they were religious and righteous and those who were prostitutes and tax collectors, all made into one new humanity. First, we're reconciled to God through what Jesus did on the cross, and then we are reconciled to each other. So Matthew 18 and everything that we read here is about what it takes to maintain the unity won for us by Jesus. The maintenance on that unity. You know, this is the oil change. If you don't change the oil in your car... That oil breaks down, it gets filled with all the little shavings of metal when your engine is working so hard, and guess what? It gets put back into the engine and it tears it apart from the inside. 
You know, it's that charge. We've got to release that charge. We've got to change out the oil. This is the way that you do it so that we can have real, genuine, authentic unity with one another, not just political pleasantries and niceness with one another. It's about real unity, and Peter picks up on that. And he says in verse 21, Okay, Lord, then, if that's what we're fighting for, how many times then should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And we don't hear it just by reading it, but Peter's sort of upping the ante of what generosity and forgiveness actually looked like in the ancient world. Most rabbis would teach three times. Three times is generous. So Peter's going, how about seven times? You know, the way I read it, it's like Peter's there, always first to speak, right? The brown noser, right? I just see his eyes, you know, fluttering at Jesus. How many times then, Jesus? Seven times? And I can just picture, like, Thomas going, oh, this guy again. You know, one of the other disciples just being like, I got to sit down. I got to go man to man with Peter right now and just enact what Jesus just said. Like, I'm sick of this guy. But, but Jesus blows the lid off that question. He goes, it's 77 times. No, it's 70 times 7. That's how much forgiveness you're going to share. And in layman's terms, this is the message for us, Church of God, Church of the Gospel. Forgive with no end. Forgive with no end. I love this. Peter asks Jesus, what's the limit on forgiveness? And Jesus goes, what's the limit on forgiveness? What is that? And he goes into this story to talk about what it's like for someone to place a limit on forgiveness who's received the limitless forgiveness of God. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. It's a remarkably simple story. The servant has this debt of 10,000 talents, 10,000 being the highest Greek term for a number, and talents being the highest denomination of money in the ancient world. So basically, this is a gajillion dollars. I mean, this is like a zillion dollars. This is an infinite sort of debt is what is being conveyed in this statement of 10,000 talents, or translated 10,000 bags of gold. And when he gets called to account for this debt, the just and proper thing to do would be to sell him and all his family and all his possessions to repay as much of that debt as possible. But he pleads with the master, right? In verse 26, he says, be patient with me. Just give me a little bit of time. I'll get your money. And I mean, it's pleading, but it, it's fanciful. I mean, it's fantasy. There is no way conceivably that this debt is ever going to be paid off. But he, this is a lot of times what we do in our spiritual walk with God. When we fall short, when we sin, we make all these promises to God. Just be patient with me. I'm a work in progress. I promise you I'll do it better next time. But the master knows better. The master knows that this guy doesn't need patience. He needs total debt forgiveness. That's the only way his life is going to move forward. And he extends it to him. In the same way that our total debt forgiveness is extended to us through our faith in Jesus' work upon the cross. Now, this is where there's a shift in the story, because up to this moment, it's a great telling of the gospel. That's it. That's what we believe Jesus has done. But there's a shift here. This is where the gospel goes from being like a song that we sing, a sermon that we listen to, something we raise our hands to, a confession of faith, to like real life, to the ground, to the pavement, to the earth. This is when it gets real. 
because this forgiven servant runs into somebody who owes him something, a hundred silver coins. And we've got to make the comparison here. 10,000 talents versus 100 silver coins. I know you guys aren't buying things with silver coins and talents. But 100 silver coins isn't even a single talent. So we're talking, this is a minuscule amount compared to the other debt. That could conceivably be paid back. So when this guy asks for patience, he says, please, give me some more time to pay it back. You see that the forgiven servant actually holds his fellow servant's feet to the fire. He doesn't just give him time or he doesn't show him patience. It's even worse than that. He chokes him out, demands repayment of the debt, and takes him all the way to prison. Now, this abuse hasn't happened in secret. The response of the fellow servants that are spectating is rightly outrage. They say, how can this be? It's sort of like earlier in Matthew chapter 18. If there's somebody who won't repent, though they've done wrong, the church is supposed to say, we're not going to put up with this. And you're going to cast that person out in the same way Here's this offended party who's been forgiven and won't extend forgiveness. The community isn't going to tolerate that. And they go to the master. And the master, when he finds out, he's angry. And he says, look, that right and just debt that I had forgiven, I'm going to reinstate it. Because if you're going to bind your fellow servant to repay his debts, then I will bind you to your debts. Just as James tells us in chapter 2, verse 12, speak Use your words with each other and act with your behaviors as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The law of Jesus, the law of the Spirit, that's what we're living by because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus says, this is how you'll be treated. This is how I'll be treated if we make judgment triumph over mercy. If we live in this way, this is what debt is going to be held against us and that payment will have to be made because the gospel has to be more than words. It has to lead us to forgive our brothers and our sisters from our hearts. From the heart, this has to be real. You know, we can forgive people with our words, but our heart can still harbor those resentments. You know what I love? This implies that God, when he forgives us, he forgives us from the heart. Don't you love that? That it's not just in word, that he looks at all that indebtedness, the thing that we could never pay back, the 10,000 talents, an infinite amount, and he says, I'm going to forgive you of that, I'm going to release you from that, and I mean it. It's really gone. But then he asks of us that we extend that same sort of grace from the heart to our brothers and sisters. I never noticed this before when I was studying this passage. But there's two very different people in this passage that are very much alike. Both the offender and the offended have the same issue. They're not willing to do the work to be one with the other party. Do you see that? There's the offender in the first half of the passage we read today who's done something wrong against somebody else. And no matter how many steps are taken, they won't humble themselves. They won't repent in order to be one with the other. 
And then you have the offended party on the opposite side of the equation. And they've forgotten, they've lost sight of how much they've been forgiven and they will not do the work to release the indebtedness of somebody who's offended them. They won't do the work to be one with the other party. That's what we have to consider for ourselves. Are we going to be the people who do the work required to be one? We have to do the work. We have to humble ourselves and admit and repent when we're at fault. And we have to be willing to receive someone without end in their flaws and faults. Also, we can be the unified people that Jesus died to make us to be. So I want us to consider again in prayer where we started. You know, where are you the offender in someone's eyes? Where are you the offended? We've got to do the work to be one. Jesus made us one. He died to make us one with one another as well as with him. Are we going to put in the work likewise to be one? That can be very difficult when we're dealing with matters of the heart. But this is where we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to move us along. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me as we seek that help? Heavenly Father, we first want to acknowledge your great, not just patience, but your great grace. What you extend to us is total forgiveness from the heart. Complete freedom for those who place their faith and trust in you. Thank you, God, for a generosity that exceeds anything that we'll ever have to extend to anyone else. What's been canceled from our accounts is more than we'll ever have to cancel from anyone else's account. Lord, help to make this gospel that we believe that what you did, Jesus, brought us into union with our Father in heaven and that it brought us into union with our brothers and sisters. Lord, would you make that real, concrete? Would you make it a lived thing? Lord, those who didn't put in the work to be one with their brothers and sisters. The offender, he was excommunicated. The offended who didn't do the work, who didn't extend the grace, his debts were held against him. Different people, but the same issue. They wouldn't do the work to be one. So Lord, help us to do the work. Whether that means opening our ears and listening, humbling ourselves, repenting, asking for forgiveness. Lord, whether that means extending that forgiveness, canceling someone's debt, though we wish it could be paid back. For some, Lord, it's so difficult to just even go to another person, to even be a people of healthy communication is challenging. Lord, will we be bound and at the same time set free by obedience to what you've called us to here? Enable us by your Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do 
in ourselves. Cleanse our hearts of hatred. Cleanse our hearts of resentments. Cleanse our hearts of anything that is fueling conflicts and relationships. Jesus, you laid down your life that we would be one. Lord, help us to lay down everything that we are to fight for the oneness that you've already won for us. Just cleanse us, Lord. Cleanse us. Cleanse our hearts that we wouldn't just forgive in word, but we'd forgive from the heart. Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.